Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Welcome to the Climate Crisis Podcast. I'm David Knowles, a senior editor at Yahoo News, and I'm here with senior editor Ben Adler and Yahoo News videographer Eve Hartley. We are here in Glasgow covering the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. And I wanted to start off, uh, Ben, of the three of us who has uh, covered the Paris Accords, and you were in Paris in 2015. How do you see what's going on here at COP26? What's the difference here? How far have we progressed? What's the mood? How does it compare? Frankly, the mood is grimmer here. In Paris, at least from the U.S. perspective, there was more optimism because in the run-up to it, some large developing nations, China, India, and Brazil being the, the three biggest, made commitments for the first time to address their emissions or other related issues like deforestation, something they had been reluctant to do in the past. And the U.S., led by President Barack Obama at the time, and John Kerry, who was the Secretary of State at the time, had some real diplomatic breakthroughs making joint uh, announcements with them. This time, the hope coming out of Paris was that when the Paris Agreement was struck, it was considered this landmark breakthrough because all the nations were on board and they were all committed to uh, staying below two degrees Celsius of warming and aiming for 1.5. But the actual individual national plans, if you added them all together, you would have at least 2.7 degrees warming and that's, bear in mind, Celsius, so we're talking like five, six degrees Fahrenheit uh, by the end of the century, and possibly even more. So the hope was that five years later, they would come, everyone would come back together, and having set out on the path of a clean energy transition, and seeing prices for solar and wind coming down, and so on, they would make a bolder, stronger agreement five years later. Unfortunately, in the last five years, things haven't necessarily gone in the same direction. Obviously, in the U.S., you had four years of President Trump, who um, rejected the signs of climate change and pulled out of the Paris Agreement. In Brazil, the uh, center-left government was replaced by a a very right-wing government. Bolsonaro is sort of considered the Trump of Brazil. And uh, India and China have sort of stutter-stepped forward on climate change. And so you haven't, coming into this, gotten the bigger, bolder offers. Mm-hmm. And with with now six years having passed because of last year being canceled because of COVID, there's, I think, more of a sense now that time is really running out mm-hmm. and that you need bolder commitments this time for it to be considered a success again. And so far, it's not there. Yeah. So we're a week in, right? And we've had, uh, you know, a few agreements, new pledges. Uh, there's been a pledge to end deforestation, that seems, you know, pretty watered down at best. Though it's a commitment to do this by 2030 to stop deforestation. We have a pledge from over 100 nations to curb methane emissions by 30% by 2030. 
by 2030 again. These are meaningful if they're followed through on, if they really come to pass. What's your assessment of how likely that is? Well, the challenge is always in the implementation. One of the other things that hasn't gone exactly according to plan is climate finance. And so in Paris, the plan was for developed nations, rich nations like the US, Europe, Japan, to reach $100 billion a year in climate finance uh, that would help developing nations transition to a, a clean economy and adapt to and prepare for the challenge, the uh, effects of climate change that are already happening or that are guaranteed to happen in the next few decades based on our past greenhouse gas emissions. Now it's 2020 and we're not quite there yet. And so that's an example of something where it's really becoming a sticking point for developing nations. It's really hard to get a country like India on board to do more when the rich countries that created the problem haven't met their own commitments, haven't fulfilled their own promises. With deforestation, I think it's going to be a similar question. Countries like Brazil have said in the past that they're going to stop deforestation, but then the Bolsonaro government comes along and it, it starts up again at an even faster rate. And there's a lot of, you know, in, in the developing world, there's some kind sometimes uh, the government doesn't have perfect control over what's happening. There's illegal deforestation that happens. Uh, there's, you know, either because they don't have the capacity to stop it. And if you can imagine, the Amazon is a tough place to police, but also there's corruption. So, you know, a lot of these pledges that are coming out now, uh, whether they're private sector climate finance pledges or some from governments or deforestation or the end to uh, the, the pledge by 20 nations, including the U.S., to end funding fossil fuel development abroad is, a, is another big, important one, although not nearly as many nations have signed on to that yet. But, you know, whether that's really going to be fully implemented and whether it's going to survive changes in the governments in, in these countries is, is something that remains to be seen. Eve, this is your first climate change conference. Um, I'm curious about what images, what impressions really stand out to you as somebody who's coming to one of these things for the first time? Yeah, well, I think for me, the main standout interesting moments mean how close we've been getting to world leaders. I mean, in the first couple of days, I think I counted six world leaders that had just brushed past me in corridors, for example. The former Prime Minister Theresa May was one of them. We've also seen other figures such as Al Gore just in the hallways and Greta Thunberg just wandering around as well. So I think for me, I didn't quite realise how close we would get and how many important and, you know, official people would be, um, you know, to everyone else in the conference. And in terms of other visual aspects of it that have been, I mean, maybe slightly funny and interesting, I mean, there, there's a, a huge food hall which probably kind of sums up the atmosphere of different nations and, and how, they, how they're reacting to, to food in the conference centre. And, and there's a line, there's different lines and different stalls around the restaurant. And it's, it's quite funny that the Scottish larder, which is um, serving, you know, classics such as haggis and other Scottish uh, national dishes, happens to, to have been uh, the, the emptiest line in, in the room. 
Except for you. you you've been going to the Haggis station oh, every day, right? I mean, you can't get me away from that place. <laughs> and, it, and it's also fun how in the restaurant and across the, the different food stores in, in the conference, they've, they've got the CO2 impact mm-hmm. of each dish displayed at the side of it. So you can actually, you're actually stood there waiting for your food, making a moral decision as well as a culinary one about what you want to eat for your lunch. Hmm. I mean, yeah, what if I wanted the haggis, but but it's too bad for the environment. So I'm gonna... maybe that's why no one eats the haggis. I think maybe <laughs> it is. It is the wor- apparently it is the worst dish. The food in general was much better in Paris, and in general the vibe in Paris it felt. Everything with the UN can be fairly bureaucratic, but in general, it felt comfortable in the facilities and relatively well run. This one does not feel that way. (laughs) There's a totally different vibe here of everyone being a little bit dissatisfied. It's very claustrophobic in there, I think. It's way too crowded and it's just not a big enough space and there's more people here. Every time it happens, it grows because there's more and more concern with climate change, more and more people coming. And this is a, Glasgow is a smaller city that isn't as well equipped to handle it. And on top of that, you have COVID. And with all of the, you know, having to take a daily COVID test and show your test result to get in, you know, there have been these huge lines backing up to get in. And there's just a general, generally kind of disgruntled feeling, I, right. I find, especially among the activists. I would agree with that. One thing that's really struck me about being here is I think maybe 90 8% of the people who are here, from the activists to the delegates themselves, to the governmental figures, all agree that we need to act swiftly on climate change, right? Exactly how we act is a, is a matter of disagreement, but I think people are in alignment with the idea that this is a big problem for humanity and something needs to be done about it. It's not such a controversy on that score, right? But then you have the activists like Thunberg who are fuming that people aren't taking this concern seriously enough, right? But, you know, when you hear people like John Kerry speak, you get a grim sort of tone out of his mouth as well about the need to to act quickly. And uh, that's one perception that I have about this conference is that actually everybody is pretty much on the same page, on the basic page. The details, the devil's in the details for sure. Second thing that strikes me is um, what you were talking about, Ben, earlier, which is getting these agreements to stand in the countries that have agreed to them in the local political situation. In the United States, it strikes me that the Biden administration, their entire goal at this conference was to reestablish American leadership and convince people that we were leading by example. And that was made trickier by the fact that Congress had not approved the president's infrastructure and spending bills back home that contain lots of climate change action in them. So I guess the question is, again, how seriously can we take the rhetoric, the commitments, given the fact that back home in the United States, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of agreement. Yeah, that was an issue last time too, actually, because Republicans were in control of Congress. Mm -hmm. So Obama was here trying to make commitments that the U.S. would reduce its emissions. And he's frankly constrained, the president is is constrained 
and can't really credibly promise emissions cuts on the scale that climate justice would demand, meaning the U.S. is by far the largest historical emitter of greenhouse gases. China now emits more per year, but the U.S. has been doing it for much longer. The U.S. is also large countries, not counting little oil states like Qatar or something. The U.S. is the largest per capita. And so what developing nations and activists want and think is the morally right, only morally right course of action is for the U.S. to dramatically reduce its own emissions. But the president can't achieve that unilaterally. It's, I mean, it's almost impossible for it to happen without Congress, which controls the ability to tax and spend. So Obama last time was promising cuts of about 25% in our emissions in the nearer term. And that wasn't really good enough to get stronger commitments from other countries. Uh, Biden has made much bolder pledges in terms of emissions cuts. He's saying we'll cut half from 2005 levels, which are already below, by 2030. The only way that's likely to be achieved is if Congress passes his plan. And he was hoping to come here with the plan passed. And the fact that it hasn't is probably one of the reasons that you don't have as strong a sense of optimism as you otherwise might have. One thing that is a little bit different, last time Republican senators like James Inhofe, I think, came to undermine the negotiations to say, we're not on board with this. Don't trust Obama because, you know, we won't allow the U.S. to, to act on climate change. Although a lot of Republicans still reject climate science or, or think that nothing should be done about climate change, uh, that hasn't happened this time. And instead, you've got a small group of Republican members of Congress who actually are here to support the negotiations. They don't necessarily support everything Biden promises, but they do support the idea of climate action. So there is this movement in the U.S. politically, but the U.S. political system is, is a very slow, compared to all these other countries, European countries have done much more, typically, to reduce their emissions and to provide climate finance. European countries both have center-right parties that are much more pro-environment, and they have a parliamentary system where if one party wins the election, they enact their agenda. The US, Democrats control both houses of Congress and the White House, but because of the way the Senate is set up with its rural bias, they need the votes of you know moderate senators from more conservative states like Joe Manchin from West Virginia, and that just um, you got the filibuster, you've got the judicial review and the, and the possibility that Trump's justices Trump appointed could throw out policies as well. What Obama was trying to do last time is pass rules, executive actions like regulation under the Clean Air Act. Biden's now trying that approach as well. But there's the threat that uh, the Supreme Court could throw those out, uh, especially now that Trump appointed several justices. Right. Eve, as uh, someone from the host nation here in the United Kingdom, what do you think the takeaway will be from British citizens? Was this a success for the United Kingdom? Did uh, Boris Johnson do a, a good job as, as host? Well, I think as Brits, we're, we don't like to self-congratulate ourselves very often. And I think this conference has been marred by, you know, criticisms about long lines, as Ben mentioned earlier, as well as just kind of organizational failures in other areas. 
So I don't think Brits will, will look at this and think, wow, we, we're going to pat ourselves on the back. We did such a great job here. Um, and as well, Boris Johnson has been criticised for leaving what some people believe is, is quite early in, in a private jet to take a... To, well, I don't know if it was a private jet, but to <laughs> definitely taking an aeroplane home was seen as something that shouldn't have been done when you're exiting a climate change conference. So I'm not sure if the overwhelming feeling will be positive from this, but maybe for Scotland, for Glasgow, um, for Nicola Sturgeon, I think it's definitely put it on a world stage and people from all over the world and all over different walks of life have been able to embrace Glasgow, ourselves included. We've seen some beautiful buildings when we've been walking around. And so I think it's a success, maybe more for, for Scotland. So we have another week to go here. And then the hope is that there will be some sort of an agreement that the nations can reach, which will be seen as meaningfully keeping temperatures below the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold that the IPC has warned, beyond which there's a lot of a lot of bad things are going to happen to the planet. What can we expect, you know, looking ahead, Ben, what do you see as the over-under in terms of coming away with an agreement that surprises anyone in any way? Or is this already a, a done deal? Have we seen the big changes or are there still surprises ahead? That's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that. What do you think? My sense is that there will be some sort of an agreement that will be specifically tailored to the idea of keeping 1.5 as the goal, right? That's fast slipping away, it seems to me. I don't know how meaningful that pledge or that agreement will be, but I think we'll have something that will be announced. I mean, I, as depressing as the situation is, I, I think that there is still a lot of optimism at COP26. It's, um, it's, it's funny. It, there, there's a mixture of fatalism and what can you do but try, you know, sort of an attitude that... Yeah, and there's also this kind of like utopian futurism stuff. Right. right. <laughs> like the dinner we went to last we, night. We went to a dinner, <laughs> we went to a dinner for, for listeners, we went to a dinner last night on the future of cities, which um, made you think that simultaneously there were going to be a billion climate refugees that were scouring the planet looking for a place to sleep, but cities were also going to be these marvelous places to congregate and live. Sustainable. And, and, and it is sustainable, and every building is going to be topped with trees. And, and people well, Don't forget the, the three-wheeler car. The we're solar. Oh, yeah. And we're all going to be driving solar three-wheel cars. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But there's tons of that stuff in the exhibition hall, too. There's the the electric Formula One car, which I just want to get in and <laughs> pretend to drive. Um, and, you know, they're always, you always see at these things, these demonstration projects that, like, I remember at, at the Aspen Ideas Festival, I, I test drove a hydrogen fuel cell car mm-hmm. from Toyota or something seven years ago. It was, it was great. You know, it was silent. And whatever happened with that? Yeah, like, have you, ever, have you ever had your friends say, oh, I bought a hydrogen fuel cell car? And, you know, but there's, there's tons of stuff like that small modular nuclear reactors is kind of the big new thing now. Mm-hmm. I'm not a scientist and for all I know it's it's great and it's going to work out, but I also wouldn't be surprised if we were back here in 5 years saying whatever happened to those. Right. Well, I guess we can uh, all still hope for something meaningful ahead whether it be a technological advance, a diplomatic breakthrough 
or uh, you know pressure from activists like Thunberg and her group that are going to be marching through the park today. We're hoping something gets done. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.